Well, stand with me as we rise this morning to read our sermon passage. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 134. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you today, I would invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, even in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 519. We come to the last in our four months long series through the Psalms of Ascent today as we want to look at another short psalm, Psalm 134. So let me read the three verses for us and pray for God's blessing and then we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to you through his word. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that you alone are worthy of our praise, our adoration, all of our worship. So help us this day that your spirit through this word would stir afresh our hearts to worship you rightly, to bring unto you our praise that you might be glorified in our lives. And we ask it for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We may be seated. A few things, isn't it true, reveal the depth and breadth of our theology and our spirituality as what we understand to be true about worship. It's quite common that you can take a person's convictions regarding the subject of worship and you can probably predict a vast majority of their other theological or personal convictions related to how they understand God's truth and apply God's truth. Many of you know that in recent decades there has been no doubt no small number of books and articles even discussions on the subject of worship as the late 20th century brought us what many would now refer to as the worship wars in North America. And it was in that context that one influential preacher wrote this about the subject. He said, The unspoken but increasingly common assumption of today's Christendom is that worship is primarily for us to meet our needs. The telltale sign of this kind of thinking is the common post-worship question. How many of you have asked this in the last month or so? What did you think about the worship service today? When the real question ought to be, what did God think of it? And what does God think about those who worshipped Him? We do live in an age, don't we, as many of you would surely know, that is commonly referred to today as the age of expressive individualism, which simply just means that our psychological core defines our being. And so if you apply that to the nature of what it means to worship God, it's quite true That so often, even in Christian churches, worship can quickly become about self, self self-help, self-improvement, self-actualization. And yet what we're going to see from Psalm 134 today is, of course, that worship is ultimately and always about God himself. Therefore, to engage in worshiping God is to engage in a radically counter-cultural event, a radically counter-cultural reality For when God's people worship Him, they don't do so because of selfish, personal desires and preferences, but they do so because of who God is 
and what he has commanded of them in their offerings unto him. So if you just glance down, of course, at Psalm 134, it's quite short. It's very brief. Three verses that just pack a punch, don't they, on this subject of worship. And it's even a fitting conclusion to our study through the Psalms of Ascent. You might remember back many weeks ago when we started this series, we were in Psalm 120. It was there that the psalmist was found in the lands of Meshach and Kedar, which was the far-off lands, wandering in the wilderness, as it were. And as the texts continued and these songs and prayers marched ever onward, they were always marching, weren't they, towards this holy city, Jerusalem, this Mount Zion. And we've seen in recent weeks that the psalmist is there in Zion, enjoying God's presence and rejoicing over the unity that's ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 134 is a fitting conclusion as it seems to picture this conversation almost, this back and forth between worshipers and priests as the people would return home after the feast or the festival that brought them up to Zion to begin with. And so it's right then to understand this psalm was probably used in a context that would have worked out something like this. You have these worshipers that had been in Jerusalem for some days, perhaps weeks, and they had risen early in the morning. They were going to soon make their departure home, and for many of these worshipers, it was going to be a long road, a long way back home. They rose early before the sun, of course, was fully up in the sky, and as they might have turned around, as they were walking out of the city of Jerusalem, they noticed the temple. It was there in the temple that they saw lights, lamps still burning. And so they shout over their shoulders a summons to the priests and the Levites in the temple that they would continue their priestly service in worshiping the Lord. And that exhortation to the priests resulted in the priests giving a benediction to the departing travelers, which is really what you see in verse 3. So it's a text that comes to us in two simple parts. Verse 1 and 2, it seems to be these words from the worshipers to the priests. And then in verse 3, it's a word from the priest to the worshipers. And what you want to think about related to this psalm is it's a simple theme putting before your attention today what it means to live blessedly forever. Because with only a small number of phrases, students, what you're going to see in this psalm is it packs a lot of truth regarding this subject of worship. We'll see that actually with five questions here in just a minute. And of course, if you're in here today and you wouldn't say that you are following the Lord Jesus Christ, you wouldn't say that you know him, have any interest in him, but you just happen to be here today, uh, what you want to know is what's in front of your attention from this text this morning is the supreme delight, the supreme joy that any person can understand this side of heaven, which is worshiping God in the glory and power of of His presence. So kids, as I was reading the text, you may have noticed that there's this little four-letter word that marks off each verse. You glance down again, it's this word, bless. This is a psalm all about blessing, living blessedly. So first... In verse 1 and 2, we want to consider this call, you bless the Lord. Then as we hear the benediction of verse 3, we want to consider the Lord bless you. So you bless the Lord. Notice again, the first word of verse 1 simply says, come. Now it's the exact same word that introduced our last Psalm of Ascent in Psalm 133 that we looked at two weeks ago. Yet if you glance up to Psalm 133, it's likely that your translation doesn't say, come. But it says, 
Behold, that really is a better translation of the word. And you might remember when we were studying Psalm 133, I said, when you come across behold in the Bible, you don't want to race through it in your Bible reading plan, perhaps in the morning, because it's almost as though when this word is used, what the Spirit is doing, he's reaching out from the pages of Scripture, and he's grabbing you by the face, like sometimes parents do with children, and saying, look, you can't miss this. This is really important that you understand this. Well, what's really important that we understand? Well, it's another command, isn't it? Come, bless the Lord. So I want to ask five questions of verse 1 and 2. First, what is worship? It simply tells us, doesn't it? Come, bless the Lord. Even the end of verse 2, the exact same command is reiterated. Bless the Lord. That's what it means to worship God, to bless the Lord. I wonder if you might be a person that you come to such a command and you you wonder, well, how is it that I bless the Lord? Isn't it a little bit more normal in our thinking that we think of the Lord blessing us? But maybe it's helpful to recognize that other translations would render this command, bless the Lord, as, as praise the Lord. That's really all it's saying, that what is worship other than praising the Lord? What is worship other than adoring the Lord? And what is worship other than, than blessing the Lord? What is worship? It is blessing the Lord. Notice question number two. Who is to worship? All you servants of the Lord. Now, if you were at this time living in Israel and you were in the holy city of Zion, the servants of the Lord were clearly the priests. They were the Levites, those that were officially and formally, they were, they were set apart for the work of worshiping God, of serving the Lord in the temple. And so it's why it seems as though as these departing travelers, these pilgrims were returning home, they're shouting over their shoulders, hey, you guys in the temple, keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, uh, serving the Lord. And yet it is right, I think, for us to recognize that in the fullness of Scripture, the ultimate work of Jesus Christ, that every single person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and bows before Him as Lord, they are considered and counted as as priests, as servants. Because even you'll notice from the meditation text that was printed in your bulletin, Peter will say in his first epistle, that we're all being built up like living stones into a spiritual house for God. That we might go about this business as a royal priesthood of offering living sacrifices to him. For that's our our spiritual worship. And so kids, what you need to know today is that if if you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not just a child of God. You're not just someone who's been redeemed and bought back from sin. You are genuinely a, a priest. You are a servant in God's house. So students, as you think about, you know, what you're going to do with your life, many of you will think about the kind of person that you want to be, and and rightly you'll think about, you know, the blessings, unique blessings that might belong to being a spouse, or being a parent, or being a grandparent. You might even think about the blessings, the unique privileges that uh, belong to being an employer, being an entrepreneur, having your own business, being an athlete, being some sort of influencer. But what you need to know is that the Bible always tells us the best thing that you can ever be is a servant in God's house. The sweetest thing that you can ever do is serve God in his house. And so it's a word, isn't it, also not just to those who look to Jesus Christ in faith and are trusting in him. It's a word that belongs to those that might be in here today that don't look to Jesus Christ and look to him in faith. 
Because the free, unfettered access that God's servants have to his presence, it's, it's the great treasure, isn't it, of, of Christianity? But to those outside of Jesus Christ, it's not a treasure. It's the unfathomable, blinding terror to come into God's presence because you don't do it as a child of God. You don't do it as a brother or sister of Christ. You don't do it as a friend of the Savior. You come into God's presence as his enemy. And you can't stand there without his judgment and punishment falling upon you. But of course, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God in his love and compassion, he sent down his son to do that which you can't do, but just pay the penalty for your sin, living perfectly, that he as the great high priest would shed his precious and perfect blood, that it would cover your sin, that if you would look to him in faith, that you would too be counted as one of his servants, one of his siblings. You would belong to this God who deserves your worship. So what is worship? It's blessing the Lord. It's praising the Lord. Who is to worship? It's the servants of the Lord. Well, notice now, when? When are they to worship? Verse 1 continues, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night. For the first few years of our marriage, my wife Emily worked three nights a week as a NICU nurse at a hospital down in Dallas. And so she was well aware of these responsibilities and even trials and the unique accountability that belongs to being on the night shift. And what the psalm has in mind here is those who are on the night shift, on the night watch in the temple. Because you might know that it was throughout the day, morning and evening, that things were to happen at the temple. There weren't sacrifices, blood sacrifices that were offered in the evening, but there was always preparations that had to be made for the morning sacrifices. Things need to be carried here. Things need to be brought there. Things need to be sung at this time, proclaimed at this time. There was a profound privilege and responsibility that belonged to those who were worshiping at night. But of course, the immediate and necessary application for us is that God is to be worshiped day and night. You might know of other psalms that speak about from the rising of the sun to the very setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And consider your own life, your own average, ordinary day. From the minute you press stop on the alarm clock to perhaps turning the light off when you go to bed, is it as though the hours that have passed were ones given to serve the Lord? No matter what you were doing, no matter where you were, no matter what responsibilities and callings that he has entrusted to you, have you seen that as a means by which he intends that you would worship him in the service of praise, in the service of blessing? And verse 1 ends not just with when to worship the Lord, but where to worship the Lord. You see all who stand by night in the house of the Lord. My kids, you need to know that the Levites and the priests, they had dwelling places there really attached to the temple, these settings where they would sleep, these chambers where they would reside. And so for them to worship God in his house was nothing more than to worship in their house too. That was their work from morning till evening. Day by day, they were given over to the worship of Yahweh. And that should be true, shouldn't it, of all of our homes? That even they might be these little churches, these little houses of, of God's praise. But I do think the more central thing that we need to see here is also a a connection to Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that he is the true temple. He is the true tabernacle. 
that all of our worship is to go up to God in and through Jesus Christ. That's why even that woman at the well, you might know this story from John chapter 4. Jesus comes and begins to speak with this woman. And they have this initial conversation about where God is to be worshipped. And this place where the Samaritans do or this place where the Jews do. And Jesus says, well, there's a time coming, isn't there? When there won't be this singular, special, set-apart place for worship. Where it's there and only there that Yahweh and God is worshipped. Well, no. True worship is going to be given in spirit and in truth. It's going to be given in and through Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom we offer our worship to the Lord. And you'll notice in verse 2 now, it tells us how to worship the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. On Monday mornings, at least this seminary, I lead a preaching lab, uh, or at least this semester in seminary, I lead a preaching lab down at the seminary, and it's always interesting to watch students grow in their preaching gift, and not infrequently after someone will preach, uh, there will be feedback related to what they do with their hands, because sometimes the hands can distract, sometimes the hand can be a value in, in preaching, and uh, there is much reflection, isn't there, in Scripture about what we do with the hands, when we worship God. And some of you have been in a Presbyterian church long enough to know that Presbyterians basically do nothing with their hands, <laughs> you know, when they come to worship God. But it's speaking about here, this posture that belongs to holy, reverent worship, that there's all kinds of things that we can do with our bodies that glorify God. You can lift your hands, you can bow down, you can fall prostrate before him, you can clap, you can raise your voice, you can stand up and shout, you can do something with your body, but the point is not what your body is doing. The point is that the body is meant to display a genuine spiritual reality, that as you lift up your hearts, well, your hands lift up too, as you fall down in humility before the Lord, your, your body seems to sink at the same time too. A phrase there, lift up your hands to the holy place. You could translate it as lift up your hands in holiness. It's the idea of what we offer to the Lord in our worship, in our praise. It's, it's meant to have this dominant note of it. It's, it's a holy offering to the Lord. It's one that's consistent in its integrity. We, we dare not be like those Pharisees that Jesus warned and spoke against where he said, well, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There's no consistency with what's on the outside and what's really on the inside. And we know, of course, don't we, that God knows in his all-seeing eye and power what's really on the inside. And you can offer to him forms that from the outside seem reverent, seem holy, seem, seem godly. And yet he knows the hypocrisy that lies within your heart, the unconfessed anger, the unrepentant grumbling that belongs to your heart. So what is it to worship God? Well, it means to bless Him. Who's to worship Him? His servants. When are they to do it? All the time. Where are they to do it? Well, in and through Jesus Christ. And how are they to do it? With holiness. Hearts set apart for the Lord's praise. You bless the Lord. Now verse 3. The Lord bless you. You see the benediction. May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who made heaven and earth. Earlier this week, I read a sermon from a pastor in New York. His name was William Hill. In 1855, he arose to the pulpit of his church to deliver his, his last sermon. For he had been called to be a missionary to that foreign field at the time that was called California. 
And as many preachers before and since, you know, he, he's rising to give what is his farewell sermon. And he, he's thinking about, oh, what are these lasting parting words that I want to give to my people? And somewhere along the way, he begins to reflect on just the Lord's kind work in him and through him as he served this church. He rattles off these series of statistics even about what the Lord had done. He has said 89 people had been baptized, 35 of whom were adults. He said, I married 27 people. I've buried 51 people. We've raised over $800,000 for missionary work, which really is an astonishing amount for that time. Uh, and then by the end, really, of the concluding paragraph to that sermon, he says, but it's all for naught if we don't persevere in the faith. For he simply said, what matters most is that you and I be faithful in all things, committed to our trust, and win for ourselves that crown of life that's promised to all who are faithful until death. And, and these are parting words that few quickly forgot. And these would have been parting words for the pilgrims that journeyed to Jerusalem that few would quickly forget. As God's servants, the priests, would lift up their hands and raise their voices, uttering a benediction of God's blessing upon his people. And you want to notice, first of all, from verse 3, is the Lord of blessing as he who made heaven and earth. You might know your Psalter well enough to know that the psalmists are often praying to God who is the powerful creator. They're often praising God who is the one and only creator. I wonder how often in your praise and in your worship of the Lord, you think about his work as creator. It's probably quite common, isn't it, for many of us that we think of God maybe more as a savior, a sustainer, a comforter. And he's all those things. But when was the last time that you praised him as creator? And you need to know something about his work as creator if you're to understand benedictions and blessings rightly. Because, kids, how did God create the world? Well, by his power of his word. All things out of nothing by God speaking it into existence. And don't you think the very God that can speak the world into existence can, through the simple uttering of a blessing, cause benediction to fall upon your life? He's the Lord of blessing. And notice also the location of blessing. May the Lord bless you from Zion. You may have been with us enough in these studies of the Psalms of Ascent to, to realize that Zion dominated the ancient Hebrews' mind. Because it was in Zion, right, that the temple was. And it was in the temple where Yahweh was. And so to think about Zion was to think preeminently and powerfully about, about God's presence. The same thing, shouldn't it be true of, of our lives even now in Jesus Christ where he is seated at heavenly Zion above, seated at God's right hand. And so the location of blessing is actually Jesus Christ himself. As Ephesians chapter 1 says, the Father has blessed us in Christ with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what then does it mean to live blessedly forever? Well, you bless the Lord and at the same time, you know the Lord will bless you. One of the most famous preachers in American history was a man named Henry Ward Beecher. And there was a time when he was not preaching at his ordinary local church on a Sunday. And he was such a powerful preacher at the time. 
in New England that people would come from all over just to hear him preach. He was very much a celebrity figure of the time. And, and one day he wasn't preaching at his local church, and of all people, his brother was preaching. And when his brother got up to stand behind the pulpit, the people realized, well, Henry Beecher is not the one preaching, us, preaching to us today, it's his brother. And so people began to get up and walk down the aisles uh, to exit. And in a way, that was probably quite common at that time, but may strike us in its courage today. You know, he kind of hit his fist on the pulpit and said, all of those who came today to worship Henry Ward Beecher, you might as well exit from this room. But all of you that came today to worship the living God, keep your seats. And isn't it true that the Psalms of Ascent are helping us keep our seat? To keep us fixed on those matters of central importance. Of course, what lies at its heart is what it means to, to worship God. Morning and evening. To serve Him in our praise and blessing. So as these Psalms of Ascent conclude, and Lord willing, we turn the page in God's Word next week to a New Testament book. Let me leave you with two final thoughts from this psalm, first of which is God's servants are ready to worship. Look again at, at verse 1 at the end, uh, where it said, These servants of the Lord are those who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Those of you that come from a military context know the, the attention that belongs to standing, right? Uh, that you're there, you're alert, you're prepared, you're, you're ready, you're willing. You're always listening for the master's command. That summons, that is calling you to action. In the same way, the priests were supposed to be that in the temple. Standing, ready to worship the Lord. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, kids, you go to school. Are you going to stand ready to worship the Lord? When others of you go into your workplace, are you going to stand and be ready to worship the Lord? If you go to a practice field... Will you stand and be ready to serve the Lord? When you come into God's presence on the Lord's day, do you stand ready to worship the Lord? When you lead your family at night, are you standing ready to worship the Lord? But it's not just being ready to worship the Lord. Certainly it's a psalm that tells us God's servants are also happy to worship the Lord. They're happy to worship the Lord. If you glance down at your English translation, you'll see, of course, if your translation is like mine, Psalm 134, you got three verses, and every single verse ends with an exclamation point. You might know there aren't any exclamation points in the original language. But you might also know that surely it's right to put a loud line at the end of each one of these verses, such as the nature of a believer's worship of God. And I wonder if there's an exclamation point in your life, and its place when it comes to worshiping God. As there's this loud line of what it means to live blessedly forever. Surely you know as well as I do that you can come into God's house on His day and utter your praise and respond along the way that there's not much happiness in it. And sometimes it's understandable. There's suffering, there's hardship, there's trial, there's, there's tribulation, but it should be absolutely, utterly ordinary. That when you walk into God's place, what you see, people who are ready to worship God. But not just that. People who are happy to worship God. Because worshiping God in His Son, Jesus Christ, that, my friends, is the secret, isn't it? That is the joy of, of living blessedly forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you sustain us through your word and do pray that you would pour out your blessing and benediction upon us in, in Jesus Christ, he who is the blessed one.
Lord, stir within our hearts this day a freshness, a zeal, a a holy delight to worship you with reverence and awe and spirit and in truth, and knowing that it is the supreme delight, the supreme joy, the, the great happiness, and even foundation of our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as